This is WomensLeadershipSuccess.com Radio, episode number 77. Do you want to know one of the biggest challenges to good leadership? It's managing change effectively. And yet the research shows that 70% of all change initiatives fail. Why is that? One of the top reasons is because it is not addressed head-on with the very people who need to implement the change. Have you experienced this? If not, at some point this will happen in your career, your department, or at your company at large. Join us today and learn how to implement change successfully with author Ellen Oster, who has more than 25 years' experience specializing in strategic transitions and transformations. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio. Today, I'm talking to Ellen Oster, who has more than 25 years' experience as an academic and consultant specializing in strategic transitions, transformations, and turnarounds. She's also professor of strategic management and the founding director of the Schultz Center for Teaching Excellence at the Schultz School of Business. She has re- recently written Stragility, Excelling at Strategic Changes. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Sabrina. Well, I really enjoyed reading your book, and I'm, I'm really curious. You said that 70% of change initiatives fail. Why is that? So I think we're all quite familiar, you know, with disruptive external forces, constant global competition, demanding customers. Change is really the new normal um, in today's business world, and that means constant change for us as change leaders. And while many of us may be really pretty brilliant at strategy and kind of developing the plan, um, faced with those external pressures, we're often tempted to kind of move too fast and lock and load on maybe the first viable strategy that emerges. Um, We're facing time pressures, so we need to tell and sell the change and kind of get it done fast. We may walk away from the politics because it looks too sticky and too controversial. And what we end up with then is um, failed change and also change fatigue, which may haunt the next change we try to take on. Um, That makes a lot of sense, and I've certainly seen that a lot in the the companies that I work with. And I I think, um, and you've, you've kind of said it a little bit, but one of the things I see happening is people act as if the change isn't happening. Um you know the the owner of the company didn't die we didn't we didn't just merge with another company um our profits didn't just fall so they don't really ever address it um and i assume you're going to uh, you're going to talk about that more as we we ask more questions here any comment on that or yeah i mean i think you know particularly a change that we're unclear what the purpose is we're unclear the rationale and the why for the change and we may be a bit foggy on 
what's really changing and how it's going to happen. Um, denial is a natural response, right? Until I really know more, I'm not going to pay attention. My plate is already overloaded and I have way too much to do. So until it's really front and center and clear to me, I'm I'm not going to be very engaged on it. That makes a lot of sense. I, I want to ask you what stragility is and how it's different from other change strategies. Yeah, great question. So stragility actually arose one day a couple of years ago when I was my fingers were f- flying a little slower than my brain, and I was trying to type strategic agility, and out of my screen came stragility, and I thought, wow, that's such a beautiful word. I really like that word. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so stragility is strategic, agile, and we add a third dimension, people-powered change. Um, And how it's really different from other change strategies is so often we find in our work, and I'm sure you find that as well, people are really focusing on the hardware of change, the strategy, the metrics, the plans. But the people-powered side is less clear in terms of how to lead it um, and also seems more complicated. So I think one of the big differentiators of our approach is we do have that strategic element being attuned to external game-changers and anchored in strategy and purpose. Uh, but we also have the people power dimension, which we'll, I'm sure, elaborate in, in later on in the show around um, really addressing the politics and also systematically working to inspire and engage people and unleash kind of the potential that we find again and again is, is all over the organization, but so often isn't really tapped and change. And then there's a third piece, which is the agility, which is all about morphing and adapting in today's change. And we mm-hmm. can talk about some tools for that. But also seeing today's change as an opportunity to build the skills and capabilities for tomorrow's change. Mm-hmm. So we're focusing as much on the content, you know, the what of change, as we are on how we do it and strengthening skills throughout the organization. So we can tap into those change leaders that are, are really found everywhere in most of our businesses. Uh, that makes sense, and I, the thing that comes up for me is how much of an expert are you on this subject? How much have you researched this area? How much, how much time do you have into putting it into practice? So um, I am an academic, so I, I've done years of research, and there's, there's actually also great studies out there that are um, at other universities, but also um, McKinsey and a bunch of other the big consulting houses now are publishing information. And then uh, uh, I've been a practitioner for almost 25 years, and most recently with this book, I've been working with actually someone who was a longtime client of mine, and then um, she's recently stepped out of her, her role at Procter & Gamble, and so we're working together um, leading our change management practice, okay. which is called Agility. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I I love what you're saying. Strategic, agile, people powered. Um and what what kind of leader is most effective at implementing this type of strategic, agile and people powered initiatives? So I think so often in business we focus on the rational side of change, which is absolutely essential, that hardware piece. But I think the kind of leader that's really most effective at leading change is one who can balance that rational side with the relational side. You know, the relational side often gets short shrift when we're under those kind of 
external constant changes, the new normal pressures. And so I think um, what we want to be doing is ensuring that we're cultivating that relational aspect of leading change as well as kind of the plan and the analytics and the kind of business case for change. That makes a lot of sense. Ellen, can you give us an example of a company that's done that? Yeah, so um, one example that I, that I think is a great example of kind of distributing ownership and balancing the rational and relational is a global port um, that was facing incredible competition from other ports. And ports, you know, they handle cruise ships and they handle cargo ships, and it's, you know, maybe pretty massive change to think about, well, how do you, how do you turn around a global port? And they did a lot of the things that we would see as totally aligned with strategy. Um, to begin with, they thought of a mantra, like a, a couple word phrase that could anchor the change for everybody and make it clear that common purpose that we were talking about a bit earlier in, in the interview. So their mantra was from rough waters to smooth sailing because they are a port, right? So they have this smooth sailing mantra. And rather than try to execute change from the top, they really went to the people and asked them for their ideas. If we were going to be the smooth sailing port, what would that look like? And they heard from everybody in a very cascading kind of process, back and forth, lots of two-way communication. And so, for the example, for example, the shipping agents said, you know, um, we have great ideas for how to pr kind of improve cycle times, turnaround times for these cruise ships and um, and um, cargo and freight ships. And IT said, we could be doing a lot more on technology. There's so many better ways we can be interacting with these ships way before they come into port to kind of be more efficient once they dock. And everybody right down to the parking lot attendants who said, you know, rather than just kind of taking people's money when they come into the parking lot, we could actually help people carry strollers and make sure their kids get on board and hand out the occasional swag, you know. <laughs> and so it's just a lovely example of really engaging everybody from the front lines to the C-suite around how do we bring this smooth sailing mantra alive? And all about building those relationships that enable people to feel comfortable contributing to the process and then validating uh, their input by actually putting the ones that made sense into action. That's a beautiful example. So they 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 brought the mantra alive. They they deepened their relationships with each other. And they got everybody engaged and empowered to make this change initiative happen. Is that right? Yeah. Did I bring miss? it to life? Yeah, they absolutely. brought it to life. Yeah. And so, yeah. really, you, I was going to ask you how you enroll people in the uh, change initiative, and um, and why why is this crucial? And you've kind of answered it, but if you could fill that out a little more, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So we do need that compelling why, that business case that tells people why why should I stop doing what I'm doing now and start to do things differently. The other thing we found really helpful is story. So to have stories, whether it's from the frontline customers or internal customers, 
um, or the pain points internally, explaining why things aren't working well now and, and what an alternative vision for the future might look like. And then this idea of mantra, which we've just talked with, about Global Port. You know, for them it was smooth sailing. At P&G it was consumer is boss. At TELUS it was we put customers first. So having a mantra that really anchors the change and directs people on how do I kind of make sense of this in terms of my daily work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having that strong, compelling why would be a huge piece of how we engage people. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece would be distributing ownership, you know, not leading from the top, not telling and selling, but rather asking people for their input and their ideas on both solutions but also execution, you know, how to, how to actually um, bring it to life. And and when they do that, how do you? What have you found is a good way to reinforce that they took ownership, they put an input, they came up with solutions, and then they actually did the execution? Can you give us an example of a company that did that and how it worked? Yeah, so a great example might be there's a medium-sized company here in Toronto. I'm based in Toronto, mm-hmm. and um, they face the challenge of cost-cutting, right? There's nothing worse as a company than trying to cut costs, and mm-hmm. that's typically something where employees are thinking, you know, they're kind of doing that denial thing. I'm not going to get involved with this, and I hope it goes away. And um, they very cleverly uh, reframed it as cost-saving to begin with, and then they created kind of friendly competition between different divisions in the organization and they set a very minor goal for the company of they just wanted 150 small initiatives, small changes that would save the company money over the course of a year. And they reinforced that. They did write it a bit into their work plans. And they had things like coffee cards, right, as, as giveaways for the best ideas of the week or the best ideas of the month. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing about this story is they actually ended up with 300 ideas the first year. Wow. And that was basically an idea per person, mm-hmm. right? So it's just such a beautiful example of kind of giving people room to run and the kinds of ideas that can bubble up if we make space for that. And to your point, if we reinforce that and and then act on it. So, you know, walk the talk. Acting on uh, the input we get is probably one of the most powerful reinforcers that mm-hmm. we listened and we heard. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, in this example, the next year they decided they wanted higher impact cost-saving initiatives. So they set the goal of 15 uh, initiatives that had to save the money, save the company. I think it was about $10,000 each. And once again, they doubled what they got. They got 32 or something initiatives. And so uh, they kept the momentum going, right? And so it's just such a great example. I do think actions speak louder than words. And when we listen and we act on people's input, that's probably the most, one of the most powerful ways to validate uh, that input matters. And, and, and then, of course, if we can work it into people's work plans and give them bonuses too, great. But really, you know, we think often that it's incentives we need. And and the relational piece again, you know, Matt, the pride carries carries companies a long way if mm-hmm. they get the chance to let people feel that pride. That that really makes so much sense. And uh, I, why can you say the opposite side of this? Because I I actually see this happen a lot in companies where there's a big change initiative and 
it's mandated from on high that we're going to do X, like let's say cut costs, and we're going to cut out all these things, but they don't really take the time or effort to enroll the whole uh, company, the whole everyone that works there. Tell us, can you tell me what happens when you don't do that? Yeah, so um, you're right. That is so common, and as as you found, you know, so many of the companies that Lisa Hillenbrand, my my co-author, my co-founder of my practice, and I work with, we find again and again that is the temptation, and I I think it is about the relentless pressure. You know, just the feeling the need to get it done without really thinking about. If we force feed a change, there's ripple effects to speak to your question of what really does happen. You get change fatigue. You may get some movement, short run, but you're not going to get the long run sustained change or the evolution that needs to keep coming afterwards, right, Mm -hmm. where people are building on the change that's already in place. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you'll see things from apathy to resistance to silence, depending on the culture of the organization, um, to even kind of going through the motions, but not really pouring people pouring their hearts and minds into the change, right? Mm-hmm. They're not really giving their ideas, and so I think those are some of the symptoms of you know, a plan that's derailing. And at the same time, we understand why it's tempting to push change that way, but we found again and again, you know, going slow to go fast is counterintuitive, but taking that time to build support. And then also working with the politics uh, earlier, sooner rather than later, really helps uh, change move along faster in the long run. That really really makes a lot of sense. And and I what, you, what I also heard there is when you have it down to that level of empowering people, it becomes um, it's in their DNA. It becomes part of what they do is to. Uh, reflect that change and be excited about it as opposed to just giving it lip lip service. Um, Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, You you said that, and I love love when when you said this in the book, and and the whole chapter on this is so good, but can you say something about, you say slower is actually faster. Can you elaborate on that and tell us what you meant by that? Absolutely. So go slow to go fast is this kind of counterintuitive notion. And we've talked a little bit about one piece of it, so I'm going to elaborate a bit more on the second piece. The first piece of go slow to go fast is that compelling why and building the stories and the business case and the mantra and sharing ownership that we've been talking about. The second piece of go slow to go fast is about the politics and so in the book we elaborate more, but just to give you give everyone a little preview, um, the idea that you really want to be looking at the stakeholders that are impacted by a change, and particularly looking for key influencers within each stakeholder group. So who are those key influencers, those go-to people that others really look to to shape their actions and opinions? And when we find those key influencers, to to assess their receptivity to change. So are they really supporters of the change on the one hand, or are they kind of fence-sitting, not sure how they feel about the change, or are they kind of skeptical about the change? And so in the land of the supporters, we want to be looking for both sponsors. Those would be people above us 
that can add credibility and legitimacy to the change, as well as promoters, which might be more people throughout different levels of the organization who can kind of generate buzz and, and build some excitement for the change. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, we also want to be looking at those skeptics. This is part of the go slow to go fast piece is so often in change, we walk away and try to ignore the skeptics. They're resistors. What kind of valuable input will they have? But we found again and again, there's kind of two types of skeptics. One group are the positive skeptics, who are people who are pushing back, but for really good reasons that we need to hear that are likely to prevent a change from derailing, right? So they're pushing back because they can see the flaws and they're kind of like the canary in the mines. Watch out, watch out, you know, Mm -hmm. There's, there's a problem here. And then there are what we call negative skeptics, which may be resisting more for personal impact. But for both those groups, the go slow to go fast piece is about really understanding why are they resisting and thinking about what can we do to A, either listen and benefit from that valuable input if they're positive skeptics, or if they're negative skeptics, you know, maybe simple, not so simple, but there may be things like, I'm really worried about this change because I don't feel like I have this, the skills needed for this new technology, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, well, we need to know that and we need to be thinking about how can we provide the training and, and support someone needs. Or I'm worried about this change because it's going to break up my work group that I feel that I work really well with. And so we need to kind of be paying attention to maybe we do need to break up that work group or, group or maybe that's a pocket of excellence we kind of want to protect in this change. So all of this is about the kind of managing the politics and working through the politics and change, and that is a great example of the go slow to go fast. But again and again we see if we take the time to work through the politics, we get those valuable insights, and we actually also speed the process as it goes through and for later on, right? Because people are then on board with the change. They're enthusiastic about Mm -hmm. the change. They're ready for the next change, um, which will come. And so those are a couple ways we can go slow to go fast. And and we do find again and again, you know, that's one of the the high-level key takeaways of the book is is keeping that um, mantra in mind, kind of go slow Mm -hmm. to go fast, we find Mm -hmm. is so helpful because it's so tempting to try to just rush with everything we've got on our plates. It's it's, it's wonderful, and it, it fits in to my next wish, question, which was how do you develop a, a robust communication strategy around change? And what I just heard you say is part of that robust communication strategy is asking how people feel or view this change and listening carefully to what the response is and letting these people know that you heard them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, when we think communication strategy and we do need that piece, like we might have a town hall meeting to launch the initiative. We might have, you know, viral YouTube videos to create awareness. We might have an intranet site where people can find out basic information or frequently asked questions. Uh, but again and again, we find this more relational type of communication is actually what makes or breaks the change. So it's a little less about, 
do we need to spend another three days wordsmithing the CEO speech? Maybe not. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. maybe if we spent more time in lunch and learns, um, you know, intermittently through the change to kind of capture people's learnings and feedback, that would be a better use of our time. And so you're absolutely right. It is both that more formal communication strategy, but also this more relational learning aspect that that we see again and again really, really work. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. And why is this especially important when a company is going through a merger? And I'm asking this question because I've seen a lot of mergers not do well because they didn't have a good change strategy. But can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Mergers are really complex change scenarios because everybody often goes in with a bit of a turf war mindset, you know, kind of which company is going to win and whose people are going to get promoted and which IT platform is going to be integrated. And so, it's kind of a smoldering volcano from the start, typically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that means that all these principles of, you know, really inspiring and engaging and embracing our inner politician um, matter more. And I think it also means that piloting and running running water through the pipes with different people is also very beneficial in those scenarios because it gives people a chance to kind of see the benefits of change on a small scale, get a quick win or two, and then they start to maybe lean more positively towards the merger. Uh, I think the why and purpose is so important in merger scenarios, too, because you really have to get the two companies aligned on strategy and vision and, and again, people often rush through that. You know, they, they do the due diligence often around markets, but not really around cultural fit between the two organizations. And so if the cultural fit, if that gap is pretty broad, we need to take the time to really pull people in to align them together before we start moving forward. This is just such great information, and <laughs> we're, we're uh, coming close to the end of the show So I want to end this by asking, you say change usually plays out as an ongoing, self-organizing, and emergent. And I wonder if you can um, help us to understand how this can happen and give us hope that we can do it too. Well, I actually tell a story here, which was about two banks, which I I can't really share the names of them, but we'll call one the hare and one the tortoise, you know, the tortoise (laughs) and the hare. Uh Uh-huh. And the hair started out fast, went out fast, and force-fed the change. It was a brilliant strategy. They locked and loaded it. They told and sell, you know, they did the tell and sell from the top, force-fed it. Um, they tried to do it on a weekend, and by Monday morning, customer accounts were frozen. The money pipe, pipeline had stopped, um, and there was already huge reputational damage, right? So that's that's the hair. Mm-hmm. The tortoise um, coming along behind initially, uh, so it was going slow to go fast. You know, they took the time, they worked with the people. It was the same type of massive tech change, but they asked the front lines how to improve. They ran water through the pipes with pilots. They did training. They did parallel processing. And when they actually launched, they did it over a long weekend, and they re-ran Friday's work on Saturday so they could see kind of the kinks and work them out 
They had open speak sessions. Um, they had SWAT teams on deck when the change actually happened. Um, and they had built-in plans for after-action reviews and learning, learning from what they did. So to me, those are two just great examples of the difference between how change is often led in organizations and kind of the strategy approach and one that is more ongoing, self-organizing uh, and emergent and, and more successful, not only in the short run, but also in the long run, right? Because that, the tortoise bank will be ready to take on the next change. The hare bank, unfortunately, as you can imagine, um, lots of people left during and after that change, you know, they're high performers, they had reputational damage, and people would be slow to take on the next change in, in, in that hair bank. So um, I think for all of us, those are, those are really important lessons that we can, we can walk away from, you know, to think about that, that go slow to go fast, distributing ownership, inspiring, and really taking the time to engage and learn from our people uh, and then doing some pilots and after-action reviews so we have change fitness kind of built into our plans um, from the beginning, and that will enable our organization to uh, continually evolve and win at change every time. Wow. That was so great, and and I hope that everyone listening to this program listens to it more than once because this this wonderful interview ellen has said so many profound things that people will want to hear it more than once so they really get the incredible suggestions you're making so listen to it more than once go slow to go fast and, <laughs> and ellen thank you so much for ta doing the interview with us we really appreciate it Oh, thank you, Sabrina. It's been my pleasure and great questions, and I look forward to all of us continuing the conversations. Okay, thank you. Good news. Starting next show, we'll be answering your top leadership communication and career development questions. So if you have a question or a concern about yourself or your team, please go to my website and fill out the short survey at the top of the page. You will also be included in the drawing for $600 worth of coaching with me. Be sure to visit iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Women's Leadership Success Podcast. And thanks for sharing my show with your friends and associates. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brahm, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.